Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Felipe Santos, and today we're going to be speaking about the U.S. security state and groups that mobilize to contest it in solidarity with those who suffer it. And for this, I'm very happy to welcome uh, today's guest, Professor Chandra Russo from Colgate University. Hello, Chandra. Hi, Felipe. So um, thank you for having the time to, to talk to us about uh, your very new book, uh, Solidarity in Practice, Moral Protest and the U.S. Security State, uh, which you just published with uh, Cambridge University Press. So I would like to ask you to introduce yourself briefly to our audience so they also know a bit more about you. Sure. Um, so thanks so much for having me on. Um, as you mentioned, um, I'm an assistant professor of sociology uh, in the sociology and anthropology department at Colgate University. So that's in central New York State. Um, I teach classes here on social movements, racism and anti-racism, the body and embodiment um, And before earning my PhD at UC Santa Barbara, I think it's worth mentioning that I spent several years myself working on immigrant justice issues in New York State, in central Mexico, and also in the state of Colorado. Okay, so before we start uh, discussing uh, the core of the book, I would like to ask you to uh, help us identify the different actors that you, you have there. So um, what is the U.S. security state and who are the groups that contest it, contest it that you study in your book? Sure. Um, so I study three groups in the book. Um, I'll mention them briefly and then I'll explain what I mean by this term, U.S. security state. Um, so one of the groups I examine is School of the Americas Watch or SOA Watch, um, which is a longstanding effort to contest U.S. militarism um, in Latin America. Another group that I look at is the Migrant Trail Walk. Uh, so this is an effort that uh, is part of the U.S.-Mexico border justice movement. And the third group I look at is Witness Against Torture, which is a grassroots effort to close the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center and respond to U.S. policies um, in the war on terror that was inaugurated after the September 11th attacks of 2001. Um, so the U.S. security state is, as I conceive of it, and of course I'm drawing on a, a rich scholarship here, um, but I'm, I'm pointing to sort of a, an amalgamation of domestic and foreign military carceral and policing priorities um, that coincide with the global transition to neoliber neoliberalism. Um, neoliberalism uh, is often understood uh, as a shrinking of the state to enhance market efficiency, right? But 
What scholars continually point out um, and what we have ample evidence to demonstrate is that neoliberal policies don't so much reduce the state spending and investments as redirect them. So my book isn't so much about the U.S. security state, but rather about these three groups that are seeking to respond to different iterations of the U.S. security state. So in writing this book, I wanted to do a social movement study that would allow me to create something of a historical arc in tracing resistance to different facets of this U.S. security state. So, for instance, School of the Americas is responding to a kind of covert militarism and set of U.S. interventions throughout the Americas that really take off towards the end of the Cold War. Uh, The Migrant Trail Walk is responding to the advent of migrant deaths that emerge with the rise of NAFTA, New Free Trade Agreements, the North American Free Trade Agreement in specific, and the accompanying border enforcement policies that really start to ramp up in the mid-1990s. And then Witness Against Torture is responding to sort of this new array of military tactics and legal categories, such as enemy combatant, as one example, that emerge with the U.S. war on terror after September 11th, 2001. Okay, and um, something that links all these three um, groups that you're speaking about is what you call uh, the practice of solidarity witnessing. So what is solidarity witnessing and how is it different from other kind of tactics that social movements commonly use? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, put simply, solidarity witness is the political practice I'm tracing throughout this book. Um, I suggest that we see solidarity witness when social movement participants utilize resistant modes of seeing as well as being seen in order to respond to political injustice that does not most immediately impact them. So in more concrete terms um, for the groups in this study, this includes a range of very much embodied, sometimes high risk, often somewhat religious tactics, so pilgrimages in the desert and to other nation states, uh, week-long fasts, or an array of different forms of creative civil disobedience, um, and public memorial rituals. And the term solidarity witness comes both from the way these activists explain what they are doing, as well as my own observations and analysis, right? So, Those involved in these groups often suggested that bearing witness was their foremost means of standing up to state violence and enacting solidarity with the state's targets. So for some of these activists, this was a theological concept, right? A a religious concept or a a notion of what it means to see and testify to God's will. Um, For many of these activists who come from Uh, a broadly Christian background. Uh, This aspect of witnessing means uh, standing up for the least among us so that they be treated with dignity and justice. Um, But many also alluded to sort of the legal meaning of the word, right? So the, the idea here is that to be a witness, so for instance, to be on the witness stand means seeing and testifying to the truth of injustice. Um, And then I have a whole sensibility about the importance of theorizing solidarity, right, for sociologists as well as activists. Um, 
on one level, I'm interested in the social position of what I'm terming solidarity activists, right? So the folks in this study are standing up for and standing with um, those who, in many instances, they will not ever truly meet or come to know. Um, but we have examples of solidarity activists throughout history. So white activists who joined the U.S. civil rights movement, men in feminist struggles, straight supporters of same-sex marriage, and so on. Um, and and while I think that a lot of literature actually treats these different groups of folks, um, there hasn't been that much theory um, about what it means to be engaging in solidarity um, in the social movements literature. But there is something a little bit more to solidarity, right? Because solidarity is this sociologically rich concept. It fundamentally motivates the origins of our discipline, right? So, you know, Weber, Durkheim, Marx were all really interested in thinking about the possibilities for solidarity in the face of their dramatic economic um, political, social upheavals, right, that accompany industrial capitalism and urbanization. Um, and I'm interested in considering what solidarity might look like in our current moment, right? So we have unprecedented technologies, capacities for connection across space and time, um, and yet the social organization of neoliberalism and security societies are rife with inequality. So I'm really interested in thinking about all that is preventing such solidarities from being realized. And then more practically for the purposes of the book, thinking about how the groups um, that I examine are pointing out these barriers to solidarity as well as seeking to challenge them. And then something that I found very interesting about um, these three groups that you speak about is what you call uh, ritual protest. That, if I understood it correctly, uh, you both refer like rituals because they are repeated through time and also rituals because many of them are very theatrical. Uh, so could you, please tell us, uh, could you please tell us a bit more about uh, this uh, ritual protest? Sure. Um... So, I mean, I, the argument goes like this, right? Within the concept or the idiom of solidarity witness, which is really what I'm tracing throughout the book, ritual protest is the testimony to the witness, right? So these activists see violence that dominant perspectives occlude, that dominant perspectives hide or mask. And then these activists stage these very performative visual events that reveal the impacts of state violence to various publics. And they do these sort of performative rituals in really emotionally evocative ways. Um, so they're, they're seeking to sort of spur um, what Alison Jagger calls outlaw emotions, what Jim Jasper calls, calls moral outrage. Um, and of course, there's, there's actually a really rich literature on the importance of ritual um, to social life, right? Um, But unlike a lot of the folks, Durkheim, Victor Turner, who are looking at more spontaneous practices, um, I'm suggesting that the ritual protests in this book um, that these activists are engaged in are these planned social performances. So they accomplish some of the, um, some of the ends that Durkheim and Turner explore, um, but they're really also a kind of political theater, if you will. Um, 
So, of course, there are numerous kinds of ritual, right? There's ritual worship, rituals around holy days, rituals of the nation state. Uh, We have births and wedding rituals, so rituals around major life transitions. Um, The ritual protests used by these groups um, tend to have a distinctly memorial or funereal nature, right? So these are ritual protests that activists use to honor the dead or the disappeared in order to contest state violence. And what I'm interested in looking at is how these groups are really quite savvy in how they use space and symbolism to evoke affect, emotions, and moral attachments. So on the migrant trail, for for instance, participants, you know, they're walking through the desert, they're walking through 75 miles of desert, over the course of the week, they're holding crosses, bearing the names of perished migrants. Um, they often, the participants often walk in silence or call out the names. So during the first few days of their journey, migrant trail walk participants are really in the wilderness. But certainly during the final four days, they're walk, walking on stretches of highway um, into Tucson, and they are visible to folks who are passing by in cars and to the many border patrol agents that police that area. Um, Among SOA Watch participants, uh, their ritual protest really is this yearly solemn vigil um, in honor of the victims of the School of the Americas. So uh, usually this is a procession of thousands uh, that, that gather in Fort Benning, Georgia, Um, and they do this hours-long sort of funereal march akin to the migrant trail. They're also calling out the names. They're holding crosses um, with the names of the deceased, and this ritual procession often ends in civil disobedience, Uh, so that's crossing on to, um, or crossing the fence um, onto the army base of Fort Benning. Um, Witness Against Torture is a little bit more varied in its tactical repertoire uh, in terms of what they're doing with ritual protest, but something that is very patterned um, is that the activists will walk silently through public space, oftentimes um, in Washington, D.C., which is where they do their annual gathering. So the activists will be walking through this public space in orange jumpsuits and black hoods um, in order to sort of represent or be these sort of haunting specters of the detainees who are being held at Guantanamo. Um, And again, there are many different ways in which this ritual protest is used by Witness Against Torture, but there's the silent procession in these costumes is generally central. And then um, something that I particularly enjoyed about your book is that um, I read it as a a very sound critique of uh, the rationalist and oftentimes economistic approaches uh, that are very common in in social movement studies, because um, not only the groups that you study mobilize uh, to defend the rights of somebody else, but they also go through considerable discomfort while doing that. So why do you think that they choose these kind of strategies? And what what do these strategies mean for the relation uh, they have with those they mobilize for? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that's really an important piece of, of what I found with these folks, right? So for the groups in this study, 
physically demanding and sometimes high-risk tactics become invaluable to the work of resisting the U.S. security state and crafting solidarity with its targets. Um, so just to give listeners a little bit of a sense of, you know, what this discomfort looks like, right? Again, so migrant trail walk participants, they're walking in the desert over the course of a week. They're camping out. Um, they're traversing 75 miles, um, tens of miles a day. It's triple digit temperatures. Well, that's in Fahrenheit. So I think, you know, well above 40 Celsius, uh, up to 120 um, Fahrenheit. Um, so folks are struggling with with the impacts of, of real heat exhaustion, painful blisters. Um, School of the Americas Watch activists have spent months and even years in jails and prisons for their acts of civil disobedience, again, which means crossing onto the military base. And then witness against torture protesters, when they meet yearly in Washington, D.C. in January, they're going without food for days. Um, so, so they fast for the entire week. They engage in the risks of civil disobedience as well. Um, and, and this often includes right stints in jail um, and sometimes prison as well. So, you know, embodied resistance uh, is, is something we see in nonviolent movements throughout history, right? Um, this use of embodied, often high-risk tactics um, to express and instantiate commitment to a moral vision and political project. So, you know, Gandhi does this huge pilgrimage, the Salt March, right, to really galvanize resistance in India, um, Tiananmen Square, people putting their bodies in front of tanks in occupied Palestinian territories. But what was interesting to me in doing the research for this book is that the embodiment of protests has actually received pretty limited attention from social movement scholars. So I'm, I'm looking at the importance of the embodiment of protest, but I'm also interested in how embodied resistance might hold a particular salience for solidarity activists who have not directly experience the injustice or violence that they seek to contest. And I think for the activists in this study, embodied high-risk sort of sacrificial tactics, um, they accomplish a few things, right? So they generate a felt sense of connection to the direct targets of state violence. So I think this is most obvious in the case of the migrant trail walk, um, right, with, with folks walking in the desert uh, to just approximate a tiny piece of what it might mean to do that journey as someone without authorization to come into the United States. Um, but embodied resistance and sort of these physically, uh, financially, legally demanding tactics, uh, they also earn these activists credibility um, and new audiences that they might not otherwise be able to reach. Uh, studies show that Solidarity activists and or allies, depending on the, the language you use, often struggle with credibility. Um, and so these this form of embodied resistance earns these activists kind of this enhanced credibility. And then the third piece is really this sort of um, larger idea I explore in the book, which is thinking about how embodied resistance and high risk tactics serve as a kind of ascetic political practice. And this comes to me a bit because of the 
complex religiosity of these of these groups. But what I mean by this is that through fasting, pilgrimage, civil disobedience, right, these activists, they're engaging in a kind of asceticism that is political. They're engaging in a form of social and political withdrawal that is intended to craft new ways of being and of refusing the U.S. security state. Um, so, yeah, that's that's... Those are some of the ideas I have about the importance of these sort of high-risk, unusual, and unlikely tactics that uh, don't really conform to sort of a rational actor or clear cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> and in your book, you mentioned that um, in their efforts to change society, activists must also change themselves. So how is this process of self-transformation and how does it affect to the bonds among the members that they're mobilizing? Yeah. Um, so I make this assertion about, you know, activists needing to change themselves most centrally in my discussion of the ascetic political practice that I just mentioned. Um, right. So again, this idea that fasting, pilgrimage, civil disobedience um, are all forms of social and political withdrawal um, by which these activists are trying to create something new, um, new selves, as well as a new sense of kind of collective efficacy and community. Um, So, you know, a, a number of theorists, right, have considered asceticism. Uh, it, it actually, it takes its etymological roots from the Greek word, um, meaning practice or training. So I, I think traditionally we think of the ascetic as engaging in a set of practices in order to become more pious, more ethical, more courageous, right? This is traditionally associated with the religious life. It often includes giving up sex or food or other bodily pleasures and in order to maintain um, one's relationship with God, right? Get closer to God. But um, I'm, I'm interested in working with sort of the understanding of the ascetic as a self who through practices of embodied discipline actually becomes a different kind of person. And, you know, Max Weber is one of the early social theorists to really think about asceticism beyond strictly religious contexts. I think um, I use the work of Michel Foucault a bit more in the book. But what I'm interested in is how these activists use fasting, pilgrimage, jail time, um, and sort of their other sacrificial practices to turn themselves into the kinds of people they believe their movements need. And What I find is that ascetic practice becomes really important in forging this kind of prefigurative community, right? So through fasting and protest, pilgrimage, um, these activists are engaged with each other in significant discomfort, um, but they find they're actually forging a really deep sense of closeness and accomplishing and reaching forms of intimacy um, that for many are actually really surprising um, and, and not always comfortable, right? But I think that forging this sense of close togetherness is actually quite central to the practices of solidarity witness. Um, so 
for some of these activists, right, experiencing this kind of community is a really radical departure from the forms of isolation or alienation they experienced prior to their entry into activism. And for nearly all of them, they report that finding this kind of community um, with each other, uh, this communal solidarity, is integral to their long-term commitment to the struggle. And something that I also enjoyed very much about your book is that um, you do not present uh, solidarity groups as monolithic entities, but you explore a bit the contradictions, the ambivalence, and the conflicts that appear in the groups, right? So it's not the same as much as, as uh, these solidarity activists try to uh, give up many of their privileges. It's not the same walking the migrant trail walk, for example, as a white American than as a, a racialized uh, migrant. So could you please uh, tell us a bit more about this kind of uh, internal dynamics that they're not always as monolithic as it might seem uh, like a, from an exterior per perspective? Yeah, of course. Um, so it's actually one of my participants um, in an early chapter of the book that makes the observation that no institution is a monolith, right? Which is quite astute as well as very sociological. Um, I think anyone involved in studying or being part of a social movement or any social group really can attest, right? The same goes for activist communities. There's a huge amount of diversity within any group. Um, so this study in many ways hinges on the ways in which these groups are similar, right? Internally, as well as across the groups, right? In terms of what they contest, the tactics they select, the folks involved. Um, but there are really important distinctions between the groups and within the groups. And there are important disagreements. Um, so This part of the book originally, I really dreaded having to write, right? So as someone who has a background in immigrant justice organizing, and I feel great affinity with the folks I studied, um, they're incredibly likable. I also think that a lot of what they're up to is, um, is really important. Um, I remember some early personal misgivings about how I'm gonna how I was gonna handle the conflicts that I knew I was going to uncover. Right? Um, I remember kind of thinking about like, oh, do I have to air the dirty laundry? Mm -hmm. um, and and social movement scholars make a really compelling case that examining conflicts um, is a rich site for understanding. Uh, movements, right? Especially movement cultures, right? So infighting is, is a great place to look at how ideas get hashed out, how visions and tactics, um, ideas about collective identity, all of that get made, um, who wins, who loses, which, which views rise up or get submerged, so to speak. I think Amin Ghaziani is probably um, one, of, one of the leaders in helping us think through this. Um, And, and I knew from early on that there were going to be some disagreements among folks in the groups that I study. Um, so what I ultimately found was that it actually wasn't 
such a dire project to, <laughs> to have to do this, right? Um, because I think it's much more interesting and actually constructive to explore what the activists themselves identify and are super aware of as the enduring quantities, right? Um, so I kind of allow the activists' uh, own critiques and sort of ambivalences to really animate how I think about the disagreements. And and what emerged was this wasn't so much about like interpersonal acrimony and conflict. That of course exists, but I don't actually think it's that sociologically or intellectually instructive. Um, but, but the ways in which kind of folks are very aware that there are sort of different ways of, of approaching some of these issues um, as well as kind of uh, limitations of these groups that folks do want to overcome. So I guess to be more concrete, I, I think we could think of sort of two overarching issues, right, that the folks in these groups identify. Um, the first has to do with inclusion and exclusion, and the second has to do with efficacy. So I think inclusion and exclusion is really what you were asking with your question, Felipe. Um, right, there's quite a bit of consciousness and conversation in all of the groups about, about the fact that they are predominantly white and middle class. Though this has shifted in really interesting ways um, across the groups, right? So School of the Americas Watch and Witness Against Torture were started by these rather small, um, very white sort of radical Catholic groups. And the Migrant Trail was started by um, kind of a, a coalition of Chicano, Mexican, Latino, and white folks in and around the Tucson area. And, and I think as time has passed, um, some have pointed out that the Migrant Trail Walk has actually become more white over time and more religious. And most agree that Witness Against Torture and School of the Americas Watch have become less white and less religious over time. So that's kind of, that's kind of an interesting dynamic um, I mention. Um, but the folks in these groups, regardless of whether they're becoming more white, less white, more religious, less religious, right? They think, reflect, and seek to address how their groups may be alienating to certain communities of color and certain groups of people that may have less social and economic mobility, right? So, you know, the Migrant Trail Walk organizers are really aware of what it means to actually take a week off of work to walk in the desert. And School of the Americas Watch and Witness Against Torture um, participants talk to me a lot about what it means, you know, who, who gets to go out and try to get arrested, so to speak, um, on behalf of, of groups that they uh, themselves are not part of. And, and there's also some discussion in the book about, um, you know, this, this idea of earning credibility through high-risk activism that I spoke about earlier how that looks really different for someone who is white and educated and upwardly mobile um, to have spent time in prison with all the support systems they have, how that, that aspect of earning credibility looks really different than the kind of social and legal tax that a prison sentence has on a person of color, for instance. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think these groups are incredibly cognizant also around, you know, gender issues, um, sexuality issues, right? So some of the more overt Christian tones have been alienating to folks who don't conform to really a cisgender binary or a heterosexual norm. But I I think these groups are really thoughtful um, in how they're always working on themselves, right? That ascetic practice, that practice training, um, really continually doing uh, the work of trying to enhance the prospects for real solidarity, which it means, which means becoming more inclusive within the parameters of their vision. Um, the efficacy question, and I realize I'm giving a, a bit of a long answer here, but the efficacy question um, is the other piece where activists feel, I think, really divided, um, but really aware of their divide. So. I think this this efficacy question is important, right? Because it's one of the central criticisms leveraged at these efforts. So in other words, what I mean by efficacy, right? Um, this question of why do these folks continue to do what they do when their policy victories have been so few and far between? Um, of course, I have my own take on this, right? I, I mm-hmm. talk about it in the book. But the argument... Um, or, or kind of the argument I make is predominantly for an audience of other outsiders to these groups, right? So folks that are either studying social movements or just generally critical of what they perceive to be, um, I guess, I've, uh, gestural tactics, right? Um, but the consternation around, you know, what are we accomplishing? Are we doing enough? Are we being effective? That arises in and among these activists, I think, is is really powerful just to let their own words and stories and kind of disagreements animate the page. Um, and I think it's important that we see and understand that these activists are like anything but self-satisfied with their approach and accomplishments, right? We, we might think of, um, well, I'm sure there's many we's that would encounter this book, but, um, you know, whether we find them insane and foolish or in- incredibly um, worthy of respect, right? Um, they themselves don't ever sit back and think, wow, we've we've just done so much by getting arrested or fasting or walking in the desert, right? So they are likely their own most avid and engaged critics. And I actually think that it does them a service to allow their own engagement and criticisms to kind of speak. And as we're moving towards the the end of the interview, um, what are the main three takeaways that you would like our listeners to to leave the the interview uh, with? Yeah. Um, So before before I answer this question, um, I I really want to be clear that I am not asserting that solidarity witness is the only or the best way to respond to the U.S. security state, right? I think that there are a huge range of um, important forms of activism that are occurring at this point in time. But I do think the groups in this study can tell us um, a few things about not just a kind of activism, right, but also what the U.S. security state is like as a target of struggle, like how to best resist it. Um, So the first lesson is a lesson of commitment and endurance, right? So in other words, 
contesting any injustice, um, but especially one um, as as sort of complex and uh, layered as the U.S. security state requires a long-term struggle. Um, I mean, we know that mass mobilizations are never as spontaneous as they appear, right? Activists are always, they're preparing, they're strategizing, they forge ahead in the face of unlikely odds. Um, But it is also this preparation that can turn the political tides when the moment is right. Um, So I think the groups in this book are important to pay attention to, not because of their short-term successes or lack thereof, right, but because of their longer-term preparation, as well as because I think those involved in this practice demonstrate a level of commitment that is actually quite unusual, even among sort of an array of political activists that we might see today. Um, The the second lesson has more to do about... um, how we think about what social movements do, right? Um, specifically claims making on the nation state. Um, so social movement scholars have long assumed that the animating feature of collective action for political change really um, is a set of demands made on the nation state. And, and obviously this is being challenged by an array of, of really thoughtful folks and sort of what we might shorthand as the cultural turn in social movements. Um, But even as I am taking the lessons of the cultural turn into this book, um, I'm also looking at a group of folks that at some level are making claims on the nation state um, in kind of an unusual way, right? So I believe at some level, this kind of claims making might actually make less sense in today's society, transnational order, really, than it once did. Um, And, and, one of the things I see these groups doing is that in enacting solidarity with the targets of the U.S. security state, right, they're tackling structures of injustice that are actually beyond the scope of any feasible effort at policy change, right? So they have found these sort of tangible, delimited targets of struggle in the context of these really impossible transnational dynamics, um, right? So they can't really take on all of militarism or all of imprisonment or all of sort of a global torture regime, right? So in this sense, their practice really highlights the limitations of sort of piecemeal policy change at the level of the nation state under a global security complex, um, And then the third lesson, I guess, is really about witnessing and what witnessing means to these activists and the many traditions of witnessing upon which they build, right? So I think what's really powerful about these groups is the way they show how the policies of the U.S. security state depend upon narrow ways of seeing um, and of knowing and living. And so when these groups envision and enact solidarity with the state's targets, um, they're actually speaking back to the narrow notion, um, the narrow seeing, right, but also the narrow notion of self-interest that dominates not just American political culture, but our understanding, um, our understanding as social movement scholars often of what motivates and sustains activists even 
when what seems easily identifiable as a victory um, is actually not very common for these groups. Okay, and now a last question that I ask to all my guests is that um, whether you could recommend me and our listeners uh, some new books that you're read, you have been reading recently and you enjoyed. Yeah, <laughs> so I, 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 I struggled with this one. Um, you gave me a heads up about it ahead of time because I'm actually transitioning into a really new project um, that is really pushing the themes of solidarity and resistance and witnessing in new directions. Um, so in order to do this, I've been reading as much work in the humanities or what some are actually terming the post-humanities as I have been in the social sciences Um, so, so the book I've been reading is Donna Haraway's Staying with the Trouble, right? In which she is looking at, I mean, this seems overly limiting, but she's looking at myriad examples of relationships between the human and what folks are often terming the more than human, non-human. Um, so it's, if you're familiar with Donna Haraway, it's kind of quintessential Haraway in that it's you know, feminist philosophy informed by science and technology studies, right? But with a deep attention to eco-artist, science fiction, to non-Eurocentric traditions of being on this planet. Um, and, you know, the, the way I'm thinking about this is I'm actually starting to look at these sort of eco-art activist projects um, as a way that certain groups are really helping us to consider the current stakes of environmental de demise and ecological devastation in new ways. Um, so, uh, you know, akin to the kind of organized denial and forgetting um, that really animates some of the, uh, well, that is part and parcel of many of the atrocities that uh, the activists in my current book look at, Um, sociologists have also considered the reasons for organized denial in the face of climate change, right, and environmental devastation. And I'm finding some really kind of unique and unusual um, political interventions uh, that are kind of trying to shake up um, sensibilities of what is landscape, what is background, um, what is human what is social, um, right? And so I'm interested in taking some of the insights that I'm getting from, for instance, uh, Donna Haraway's Staying with the Trouble and thinking about how these eco-art activist kind of coalitions are generating new ways of like imagining relationships and designing public space and doing solidarity across social bodies, not limited to the human, right? Um, thinking about trees, for example, as, as these incredibly social beings um, and working with and through trees to stage kind of these performative interventions in public space. So that's a little out there, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's the book that I'm reading right now. Okay, well, I, I must also say that your uh, new research project sounds really interesting. And I hope that when you will publish your next book, you'll also be talking to, to us uh, in the New Books Network. Um, so, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So today I've been talking to uh, Professor Chandra Russo from Colgate University about her new book, Solidarity in Practice, Moral Protest and the U.S. Security State, which has been just published with Cambridge University Press. So Chandra, thank you so much for speaking with us and talk to you next time. Thanks so much, Felipe.